Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hi, so it's Anna David coming to you live. And that's that's a lie, because this is not live at all. Uh, but anyway, it is Anna David. That part's true. This is the After Party Pod. And I welcome you, and I thank you for listening. And um, if you are new to this, it is a podcast about addiction recovery, as well as other things. It is now about, it's been like this for a month or two, anybody who's overcome anything. I mean, there's mostly sober people talking about addiction, but there's all sorts of people. And today, not only do we have a sober person, but he's sober 27 years, over 27 years. I'm talking about Brent Bolthouse. Now, to call him a nightlife impresario, I actually don't know how to say the word. But anyway, I feel like it's an understatement. This, This guy has ruled Los Angeles nightlife I think for about two decades. Um, he started off as a club promoter. Well, no, he started off as a gas station attendant. We get into that. But then he was a club promoter. Oh, then he was a hairdresser pre-club promoter. Interesting that I did not know that. Um, and he kind of made these clubs in the 90s. You know, he put like the Roxbury and Opium Den and all these places sort of on the map. And then he has uh, owned a bunch of clubs, restaurants. He he owned the coffee house, which if you got sober in the year 2000, which I did, uh, was sort of like the sober clubhouse. It was an instrumental part of my early recovery. Um, he's also, he's Heidi's boss on the hills. You remember that? And he has played himself on numerous shows like Entourage and LA Inc. Uh, but what a lot of people I think don't know about him is that uh, is that A, that he's sober and that he's, you know, running all of like LA nightlife and B, that he uh, is deeply committed to his spirituality. I probably shouldn't read that. I, he signs his emails, God bless. And I just don't know that that's what you would expect from, you know, the sort of king of LA nightlife. Anyway, we get into all of that in this episode, and uh, he's it's fascinating, and I felt lucky uh, to have him on this podcast, so I hope you do too. Okay, here he is, Brent Boltas. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to Nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? We're, we're doing this. Um, 
So, Brett, thank you for coming on here. You're welcome. <laughs> well, we were just talking about starting from the beginning. I kind of like to um, to literally just go back. Um, you know, not super every detail, but you know, I know you grew up around around sort of Joshua Tree, Palm Springs area. I did. I grew up really kind of all over Southern California, but ended up in Joshua Tree. Oh, I didn't know you were moving around. Yeah, I moved around a little bit. And then, and then, um, what I remember um, and confirmed today when I was looking up stuff. Um, but when I heard you speak at the meeting, I remember you talking about coming here as a kid, basically, and working at a gas station. That was your first job, right? Yes. And that is, you're correct. I'm correct. I'm correct. And so I will tell you now that um, you were you were hugely inspirational to me when I got sober because you were around. I knew who you were. I heard you speak at um, at this meeting that I went to back then. It always felt kind of like a party. It was like one of I was so convinced my life would be over. I would never have fun again once I got sober. And so the things I remember the most are those things that showed me that wasn't true. And the coffee house was crucial to my early sobriety. Oh yeah. So, but then I. But how did I meet you again? You interviewed. interviews for something, we, right? I think I know. Oh, well, yeah. Okay, before I got sober, like right around my bottom time, I was working at this website where for, there was like some random thing where we went over frantically to interview Corn at the coffee house. I don't know why you were you were there. That's when I met you. You helped make it happen. I don't know that. Well, yeah, that's because they were with the firm, and Peter Katzis and Jeff Watkins were all fr- we're all friends. So yeah, but that was you were cool. That happened, and then and then I think when I got sober, I probably met you at that meeting, and and then I was just I, I feel like we. Though I definitely would interview you when I was at um, like a magazine. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. I was at Premiere. That's when I interviewed you. Okay. Well, I, yeah. Your memory is better than mine when it comes to this stuff. I'm trying to think like what. Well, I yeah no, I mean you made an impact on me um, in early spotty. Oh, and then Jen Jimenez was always around. Like when yeah. I got sort of she got sort and we were just around the coffee house all the time. That's so interesting. Um, but I also I um, but the fact that you opened up the coffee house to meetings was crucial in my sobriety because I would go there every day at noon. Interesting. Yeah. And that was just very, you didn't make money off of it. You just did it to sort of be of service, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, is, do we want to start here? Well, how do you Sorry, to- I skipped. I'm not organized, even though I have a good memory. Let's. No, I'm just wondering how no, do we go? You get to go. You're driving. I'm driving. You're driving. I'm the co-pilot here. So, okay, so we got, let's get you to L.A. Or you want to start before then. So... Um, no, we can start. When did you start like using drugs? I I don't know exactly when I really started using drugs, but I know that I smoked pot in the fifth grade for the first time. Shit. So I don't know how old you are then. Ten. Ten. Yeah. Ten. Have you seen a ten-year-old lately? That's young. Yeah. I have. Well, not recently, but yeah. So that's pretty young. I didn't really like start getting high. Yeah. I, I remember trying it at ten. I guess. How does a 10-year-old try pot? To a friend? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. How does anything happen? I think mean, that's just young. I mean, I guess I started at 12, and that's well, not Well, I guess I was around some kids whose parents smoked weed, and they, right. you know what I mean? So they, 
probably had some when I was like, I tried it. Yeah, yeah. And then I don't think I really got into drugs or anything until like seventh, eighth grade. Mm-hmm. More mm-hmm. like we probably would steal beers and st- steal some weed. And then by the time I hit ninth grade, I was like full tilt boogie. Yeah. And that was the meth stuff? Is that what? I probably didn't really get to meth until maybe that summer of ninth grade, like mm-hmm. going into the 10th grade. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it's a little blurry. Yeah, yeah. But. And so, and so then, um, you bottomed out at the age of, like. Tw- 16. 16. Yeah. Shit. I got sober at 16, turning 17. And so that was, uh, you basically just realized it wasn't working, reached out to your family for help and went to treatment? Yes, I. I went on like a crazy week long bender, mm-hmm. and then came home. Had to finally come home from that because I would do that. I would just disappear for days at a time and not tell my parents where I was going. Right? Are you an only child? No, I have a sister too. Older or younger? Younger. Okay. A couple years younger, and so I would just sort of be like, "I'm gonna go to the liquor store or whatever. I'm going right. to Billy's house to go play ball," and I would disappear for three days. Would you be with friends? I don't know. I was with anyone who had drugs. Right, right. I didn't matter. Right. Drugs were my friends. So. Right, right. And would you get <clears throat> depressed afterwards? Or, like, how did you feel um, about it? I don't know. I, I, maybe it was a mild case of depression. But, I mean, at some point when you do crystal meth and you stay up for enough days, there's a point in there where it stops being fun. Yeah. Right? So, maybe for the first few months it was exciting or whatever. But there's a moment there where you're just like, oh. I just want to sleep and I can't sleep. To this day, I still wrestle with sleep. Yeah, me too. Because of the anxiety that was produced by being on crystal meth for 10 days and then not being able to sleep on day nine because you're still so jacked up. What about Ambien? Wasn't Ambien your friend? They didn't exist. That didn't exist. Oh, really? Come on. This is like 1987. Well, tranquilizers? Whatever. You, you, you I was in the suburbs. I, yeah, I, didn't okay. have, I didn't have Mother's Little Helper. Okay. There okay. wasn't that in my vicinity so right. it's just sort of like we're in a rural town in southern california right and i don't know you know and so you is that so what was the thing that made you say this has got to stop i just think i got i did that enough that i sort of was really tired of feeling that hor that horrible feeling of yeah. like being on drugs for days at a time it was really crystal meth that really brought me to my knees so i didn't really think i had a problem with alcohol yeah. or weed or PCP or mushrooms or acid right. or smoking quaaludes. All that was, I had that. You smoke quaaludes? Apparently so. I didn't even know that. <laughs> so I don't know if I got high, but I definitely smoked. Okay. I don't know how I didn't <laughs> smoke. I mean, we try to smoke like that, quaaludes, but yeah. I never tried to smoke. Meth? Yeah. Thank God. Well, that doesn't seem... Yeah, but it is good. It is good, but interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, in those momentary, like, in those yeah. moments of insanity when you're just, like, tripping balls. Yeah. So, so I just went to my parents after that vendor and said, I want help. Mm-hmm. And were they surprised or they knew because you were disappointed? Well, no, they knew time. something was going on, but my parents grew up in a small town in Illinois, and they were, like, farmers. So they right. didn't really have any... They weren't part of, like, the hippie culture. They weren't... You know, my dad was in the Air Force, and my mom was, like, working in an office. So, they didn't, they weren't, like, doing any drugs. Like, they right. never drank. They never did drugs. So, they had no idea 
what was going on. But obviously, if your son keeps disappearing at times, and you, you know, figure it out, they knew something was wrong. So right, they took me to rehab, and where did you go? I went to a rehab in Orange County. There was a there was a few of them called ASAP, mm-hmm. um, which stood for as soon as possible. I think. Mm-hmm. And that's just I went in Orange County in Brea near Knott's Berry Farm. And you stayed thirty days or longer? I think it was thirty days. Yeah, it was thirty day program. Um, I also read, and I hope you're okay with talking about this. That you're adopted. Yeah, I was adopted. Yeah. And and have you ever had contact with birth parents? Nope. So you don't know genetic. No, nope, but my my current girlfriend that I have now got me a DNA test, so I'm. Twenty percent Jewish and eighty percent Viking. Well, welcome to the tribe, sort of. She says every what happens on Friday night? Shabbat, apparently. I get a couple extra points there. Well, it it depends on if the twenty percent comes from mom. I don't think we'll ever know. Yeah, we'll never know. But definitely a grandparent. Um, That's what they say. Okay. Whoever they are. Well, you certainly have the business acumen of a Jew. Um, so I can say that as, as a Jew. As a Jew. Um, so, okay. And so then you went to treatment and you were 16 years old and sober. And what the fuck did you think your life was going to be like? Um, well, I got sober. I didn't know. I mean, it, and when you're a 16 year old in rehab, you're, it's, it's sort of like, it's a lockdown facility. You're in jail, basically. You can't right. believe your parents have put you in there. You're under the custody of these people. So you are in school, you're doing PE, and you're like whatever program they're, they're working So with. they kept you in classes? Or you had to, you had certain hours of the day were meant for, you had schoolwork still, and you had, Were there other 16-year-olds? Yeah, it was a minor facility for kids under 18. Oh, wow, okay. So it was all kids, and that's how I got sober. And so were you excited about being sober, scared about it? No, somewhere in there, and I always say it's around 20 days of getting sober, I had spiritual experience. What what was it? Um, So I did a third step where Mm -hmm. you turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand God. And I had a three-dimensional triangle appear on my left arm. Sorry, a three-dimensional triangle appear on my right arm and a, a cross appear on my left arm. That you saw while you were sitting there. Yeah. It was like manifested and it was sort of like, you know, when you get a blood blister and you like pinch your finger and like a little red dot comes, but yeah. it doesn't bleed. So it was like a series of little dots that made a cross and a series of dots that made a triangle. And so you saw that and then what happened? Well, and it was kind of like a white light experience that right. happened. Um, and then I just sort of knew that the program was the way to live my life and I sort of would get... After that moment, I didn't want to smoke pot or do anything anymore. Ever? And have you ever wanted to since? Mm-mm. The desire was completely lifted. And did you did you feel um, like reborn? Did you feel just lighter? Was there, or was it just that you knew um, that you didn't want to do that anymore? I, I just knew I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to do drugs anymore. And for me, I was raised in a really fundamental Christian home. So for oh. me, it was Jesus. Right. That was sort of my higher power at that moment in time. doesn't mean that he's not my higher power, but I think my religious beliefs have been altered by 
my studies over the last 27 years. Can you talk about what you've been studying? Later. Okay. I do remember I went to, I, I went to like a Bible study of some kind at some point. At the coffee house? No, but I ran into you there. I don't remember. It was a... Tim's story. Yes. Yeah, he's part of my story. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, and then is that the same director? No, that's no, a different, different story. Different, I was like, oh, that's an interesting story. life. Um, so, and then you are sober and you've had a spiritual experience and you come to L.A. Yes. So what happens is the guy that I'm sharing my room with in this rehab, his father ran a halfway house in North Hollywood. So his father said, if you want a bed, when you get out of rehab, you can have a bed in my halfway house. And I, I took it. I asked my parents, they said, yeah. And I packed up my stuff from Joshua Tree and I moved to North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that friend from rehab? No, no, no. Oh, okay, just, just, just on your own. I stayed in his dad's. His dad just ran a halfway house for yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah. And it was really a halfway house for men. And it was really like more, it was more like a three-quarter house because you basically, you had to stay sober and have a job. Those are the only rules. Right. There was no structure. There's halfway houses where you check in and yeah. you do the, this was sort of like all on your own admission. Right. Right. So, and I, I think, you know, I think I had four people in the room I was staying in at the time. And so, you know, I just did that. It's, I mean, I was 16, turned 17 in rehab, uh-huh. going into rehab in November 15th is my sobriety date. And my birthday is December 18th. So I was out of rehab for my birthday. So I literally like moved at probably right after Christmas back to to LA. So I was like literally 17, just turned 17 years old, moved to North Hollywood. By the way, my sober day is November 19th. Um, yes. Second of all, um, so did you know anybody besides this, the dad? I knew like one person who was like two years older than me mm-hmm. who went to USC. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in my town. Right. And his father lived in Sherman Oaks. That's the only reason why I sort of knew him. Like, right. And he was sort of, maybe he was staying in his dad's or He was, a, that's just how that connection was. Did you stay in touch with friends from rehab? Um, I did for a little while. The guy that I, I met a guy in rehab who's from Hancock Park that I ended up moving into a place in Venice with him for an early sobriety. Mm-hmm. And then we moved out. I haven't really ever seen him since. And did you start going to meetings in LA? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Started going to meetings. So I, I went and I got a job at a gas station in Sherman Oaks. Uh-huh. And the funny thing is, is the first job I went to look for, I rolled into that gas station, whatever, 40 days sober, mm-hmm. whatever it was. I right. I 45 days sober. And told the lady who owned it, Judy, who was interviewing me, because it was called Judy's Mobile. Mm-hmm. That you know that I was brought out in Bush Town. I was like, I'm sober forty five days. Right. <laughs> like all good sobriety young so- sober folks do. And was she like, I don't care? She was like, I don't care. No, she was like, Really? She goes, How much time do you have? I said, Forty five days. She goes, Oh, I have like she had like ninety days. Oh wow, okay. And so she ended up hiring me. And then she ended up the great thing was she ended up hiring only sober guys to work there. Mm-hmm. So and she was sober herself. So it was literally like I lived in a halfway house. I worked in a 
job that, that was, was recovery was, people. That was recovery people. And then I just went to meetings all day. So I did that for like the first year and a half of sobriety. And didn't you not even have a car or anything? You no, were... I had a car. Okay, okay. My, gra- my grandparents gave me a car. And um, and so, and then and then you started working in nightlife. No, no, there was more. Okay, well, what happened next? And then um, what happened was my father told me if I went back to school or went to college, he would help me with rent. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, what was minimum wage in like 1987? It must have been like five bucks. Maybe four twenty-five. Right, right. right. So it was like yeah. So the help was I was like necessary. So I was like, oh, I'll go to. And I hated school because I'm terribly dyslexic, untreated and unidentified until I was much older in life. Mm -hmm. But so I was like, I don't want to do that. But somewhere in like a drugged out fantasy, I took a girl who was cute enough, and she could wear short hair, and I cut her hair short Mm -hmm. in the desert. Mm -hmm. This girl, Bobby Ball. And it looked cute on her. Right. And so then everyone in school was like, who cut your hair? It's so cute. And, I, and then she's like, Brent did. So I became this guy in high school cutting people's hair. And you had no idea how to do it. No idea. Okay. And I was fucked up on drugs. and But I would do it like, I'll cut your hair for a joint or a bag of weed or whatever. So I ended up, you know, that was like the last week of me getting high. It was like, I went to some crazy drug dealer's house to cut their hair who lived up on the mesa high up in the middle in a cabin and because they they're too paranoid to come into town to do anything so i'm up <laughs> that's there. a good market yeah i'm in there cutting their hair so that's kind of i don't even know how or why so i said to my so i was like i know what i'll do so and i, was, I figured out because you know how we are us crust corrupted drug addicts i was like oh i can go to santa monica city college right it's college yeah and they have hair school there nice so I did that, and I rolled that, and my dad was like, you motherfucker. How did you find out? Well, no, he was like, he's, he helped. Yeah. I was in school. Yeah. I don't think he, my dad, I don't think my dad was planning for me to go to hair school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not what he meant. That's not what he meant, but it, it still qualified for the deal. Yeah. So he honored the deal, because my dad's a good guy, and yeah. um, I went to school, and went to beauty school. And you did, the, like, graduated from nope. that? Okay, then what happened? Like... Three months before graduation, I slipped a disc in my back, uh-huh. and I had to have back surgery. Uh-huh. And I had back surgery in November-ish of, or, or of your first early year. November, or early December of, I was 18. And what about opiates, um, and getting through it without, or did, did you... I mean, when you have back surgery... Whatever they give you, you take right. Right, right, right. But I, but the thing that led to the back, I had horrible back problems last year. I didn't take any pills before the back. Surgery. Right, right. Like I didn't know. Like I was a pretty, you know, as 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 a sophisticated like human. Yeah. I was not a super sophisticated human at eighteen years old. Right. Like, who, I didn't who know was? about like prescription pills or sleeping pills or like I didn't know that was an option right. and I was sober and I didn't want to I definitely knew I didn't want to get high so I just sort of like white knuckled the pain of right. like a slip disc just kind of young to slip a disc did something happen? Yeah, we didn't really know what happened I mean I was in like a little fender bender but we don't know exactly what the cause was and I had to have surgery so. and, it, and has it bothered you since? 
I've had the second back in surgery, but not at, that was as a result of the first back surgery. But I mean, it was great for twenty years plus years. Right, right, and so. And so then you have the surgery, you can't, you don't graduate because of that. Yeah, what it was, because I was such a good drug addict, while I'm in hair school, I'm also assisting at Carlton Hair in the Beverly Center, which was like the hot. Yeah, I think that might have been around when I moved to LA. And so like in the Beverly Center was like the the shit, so I'm at the hottest salon in the Beverly Center assisting me and Jonathan Anton. Yeah, it was reminding me of Jonathan Anton. So me and Jonathan Anton are assisting hair together. Um, and I'm going to school, so I'm assisting part-time. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm so crazy. As I think about it, like, I was going to school in Santa Monica. I'm working in the Beverly Center, and I was also working at Merrick's Tex-Mex at the beach. Oh, wow. Merrick's. Yeah. Okay, that's a busy schedule. Busy schedule. And so... And, and so, so I slip my... So I have I start having back problems, and I start being able to not walk. So I'm walking with a cane, and I'm assisting. And so basically, Carlton Hare goes, you have back problems, you're a liability, you can't work anymore because you're going to sue us. Right, okay. That's the gist of it. Yeah. So I kind of had to stop working, and... But that was great. When I was at Carlton, I was literally going, taking like hair color classes at Vito Sassoon. I was assisting great cutters. So I was like, I was literally like miles ahead of the kids in school. Yeah. Because really what you do is finish school, then hope, beg to get an assistant job. How did you swing that assistant job? I'm okay. such a hustler. Yeah, I you really are. I don't remember exactly how I got that job. Yeah, okay. But somehow I got that job. And um, crazy. I saw people, I see people today like Chaz, that big famous hairdresser. He's got billboards up and down Sunset Boulevard. Oh, yeah, yeah, Chaz Dean. Yeah, he, I worked with him at Carlton Hair. Right. Crazy. <laughs> and Jonathan, of course. And Jonathan. And there's other people that I just see around this girl, Vicky. And like, there's just these people that I see yeah. that used to work there. That, so it's like, it's so crazy. So I, um, I did that, had surgery. And then I, after that, I came out of that surgery. And got into the nightclub business. Okay. That next following spring, I met this kid, Tafu, who kept bugging me to open a nightclub with him. And I was like, what? What do you mean open a nightclub? It was so weird. Yeah. Somehow he felt like I had something. And somehow I'd fallen in with some people. Like I was working down on Wall Street or my friend was working the door and we were like doing some stuff down there. But I I didn't know that many people, but, but he somehow thought that I did. Right. And so I found a location, he made these beautiful flyers, and I handed them out, and people came, and it was, like, successful. It was really so, great. but that was promoting. Promoting, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so, what was, what club was that? It's called Papa Willie. Okay. And so people started coming, and you started to figure out that this was something that you were good at. Yeah, yeah. Papa Willie was, was like, the It Club of the Summer. Uh-huh. Like in those days, yeah, I think this is 89, mm-hmm. much different time in LA. Like everyone was going downtown. There's underground warehouses. This is pre-riot. So everything is downtown. Wow. Um, nothing was West. And, uh, and we did, we did Papa Willie on at the whole Hollywood Athletic Club. And it was on the corner of Sunset and Wilcox. I remember that. And so people were just like, wow, you're so far west. They wow. used to say this when we started. And somewhere in there, I, beca- I became friends with Drew Barrymore, and she, we were like, we became best friends, and we'd run around together. And she ended up being our cashier, because her mom would just let us 
Her mom was like, well, she's going to go out anyway. She might as well be with you. Right. So she was a kid. She was a kid. Yeah. She was like 14. And, um, and so then from there, you just kind of kept doing that at different places. Well, yeah. Cause we did the first one and we were like, wow, we didn't make any money on the first one, but we saw that there was money made. We paid all our expenses and we broke even. Right. We saw. So we did another one and we made a little bit of money. And then the owner was like, let's, um, why don't you do something every week? Actually, the first one was called Opus Lily. Mm-hmm. And, this, and the, what we did every week on Wednesdays was called Papa Willie. Okay. And that was sort of the birth of everything. And and so you, you never, did you ever have anything like, okay, I'm around people drinking, people are doing drugs, um, you know, this is tempting, anything like that? No, I mean, I, I, I think... I think the great thing for me was I didn't have any romantic experiences or like drinking in clubs or bars. Right. Like I drank in the desert in a car with my friends and we drank peppermint schnapps or Jack Daniels. Right. Or tequila from the bottle. Like right. That was our, I didn't know that you could have fancy drinks. Like that just wasn't part of my reality. Like I, I don't think I've ever drank in champagne in my life. Right. Right. I never had a cosmopolitan. Right. I never had like a margarita. Right. Like that stuff was just we were kids and whatever we whatever you had or we could get our hands on, we just consumed it. Do you ever like get bored though? Um, when you're out at night or you know, it's one of your clubs and you're like, God, these people, you know, I'm just bored, everyone's drunk or Well I don't ever get bored because it's always something for me to do. So I sort of relate it to Because uh, me and sometimes like actor friends have that conversation and I'm always like, well, it would be like if I said to you, we're going to go to, we're going to go to the South of France and go on vacation and we're going to go on a boat, but also we're going to stop by those studios over there. They got, I want to go spend some time in the studios. Like, <laughs> You're fucking out of your mind. I'm not going to go to a studio for my holiday. It's like me on like vacation. I don't want to go into a nightclub on vacation. Right. But for me, it was always about work. And it's sort of like when you put work into any equation, it, it changes the dynamic of that experience. So for me, I yeah. always, I mean, my father always had a great work ethic and I always saw him work and he always like whatever he said he did. So I just, I approached it and I always had a good work ethic. So it was, for me, it was always work. Right, right. That's interesting. It wasn't like, oh, I'm here to, I'm, you know, and for me, at least early on, like I didn't plan to do that. So I stumbled upon this business. And I didn't get into the nightclub business to like get laid or like even to make money. I just kind of stumbled into it. It was just yeah. like, wow, this kind of happened. Wow. Wow. I just made 500 bucks. It takes me two weeks to make 500 bucks pumping gas. gas. Like, yeah. this is awesome. So I sort of kept doing that. And then somewhere in my journey, I met this guy, Herbie Steidel. And Herbie was like this savvy Jewish guy from Beverly Hills who I think, I, and I can just, I, I've never talked about it, but I, but I should. But I think what it was is like Papa Willie was this club that there was like a line out the door. Right. Our marketing thing was we got half of the bar from the owner, so we charged a dollar to get in. And at that time, every nightclub was ten dollars. So on our flyers, and we made these beautiful flyers that were like iridescent and two colored papers, and Taft made these beautiful invitations, and it would say one dollar to get in. So if I saw you out and I you're at the beach, and I'd be like, you want to come to my club? Yeah. It's only a dollar, and people would be like, dollar. Well, I got nothing to lose. So everyone came to check it out. Right. Because it was a dollar. Which Everyone has a dollar. Yeah. So and it was crazy. But it ended up being that thing that was literally like, 
it was the birthing of stuff. Like the Beastie Boys would end up being there with the DJs and they're now sitting there. The Beastie Boys are DJing and like right. Young MC is like freestyling on the mic and Tone Loke is free. Like this is all pre-Delicious Vinyl. Like this is all like, the stuff is just kind of happening. Yeah. You know, we picked the right DJs who kind of brought the right culture and all like, you know, it's a perfect outliers scenario being the right place at the right time, the right set of circumstances. Like, that first one, there wasn't a big other. There wasn't like a competitor's party down the street. Or, right. Like we were the only party happening. Did we check a calendar to make sure that there was nothing else exciting? Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, just, we just picked a date and it just happened. Like I, at the Hollywood Theater Club, I went to some someone from some college that I knew had a like had a birthday party there. So I stumbled upon this space. I just was like, I know a place. We'll go there. And somehow they gave it to us. Like how? Oh, right. You know what I mean? Like why? I don't, like all of it's still kind of a mystery to me that. You know, yeah. I always say it was God because it was like all those weird things happened and suddenly there was a line around the block and people wanted to go to what we were doing and it was pretty crazy, you know, and Taft definitely knew more people than I knew, but he was also sort of creative and I literally, the first dollar I made, I bought a motorcycle and a backpack and I would run around town and I started handing out flyers everywhere yeah. you went. I was everywhere. Yeah. For the first 10 years of my career. With the flyers, you mean? Oh yeah. Like when I started promoting... Nobody handed out flyers at nightclubs. Like, it was me. Only me. Like, I went to every club, every concert. I went to Malibu, the Palisades, State Beach. Like, I would literally be there on a Saturday walking down to every cute girl, every cool guy. And be like, right. come to my club. Well, so, yes, you were in the right place at the right time. But that hustler thing was, I think, such a part no, of you of that you didn't even think yeah. about. Absolutely. Um, the hustler part was there. But I, but it was, I, think in the, I think there's something to be said about... I don't know, and, and maybe it's just my own romantic notion of that, but I think that, that people's, I've always been pretty genuine, and I think that people felt that genuine sense yeah. of like, hey, Anna, this is my nightclub. Yeah. I'm inviting you to my club. Do you want to come? And yeah. you sort of took that like, wow, that nice guy. I, I like that guy. He has a good vibe. Like, yeah. And you and you came, and you wanted to come, and you came to my club, and I was there, and I greeted you when you were there. It wasn't like I didn't pay some kid to hand out a flyer for right. me. I was like, this is my work. And I'm doing good, honest work. Right. I think people appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, you've always been good with the ladies. I have never not seen you <laughs> with like the most stunning woman like next to you. Fine. That, okay, fine. But but I that still, helped. I guess yes. But no. But and then there was also people along the way on my journey that helped me along the way. And there were certain events that happened that made you know like that really helped you know us. Project. And what happened to Taff? So I kind of met Herbie, and Taff sort of went on the direction of um, like raves and underground parties, and I okay. went to the direction of Young Hollywood because somewhere in there I had a moment of clarity where I was like, "Oh, this Young Hollywood thing." To me, for some reason, I I notified I, it registered that it was longevity. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there's a career here. Mm -hmm. So I sort of made a conscious decision to say. I want to have a career as a promoter, but I want to give it, do it with some, a little bit of integrity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that integrity meant, um, you know, not taking money from people that would want to get in. No, no, Jennifer did that for sure. But it just meant that I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't selling drugs. I wasn't acting like a scumbag. Right. I did what I said I was going to do. Right. All those kind of things. Like, 
And, and so then it just went on like that and each place sort of kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, we just kept promoting and we kept promoting places and we kept, that kept happening. Mm-hmm. And it just got more and more successful and I, you know, Taff went his way. I didn't understand that rave underground drug culture mm-hmm. was never, I didn't want to go in that way either. Like, mm-hmm. I felt like, and maybe for me, part of it was like, I knew I had a problem with drugs. Yeah. I never really, I had a problem with drinking. But drinking was always the crutch of if I couldn't get anything else, we would cop some drinks and get wasted. It wasn't like drinking wasn't my go-to fun, good time. Right. So for me, it wasn't like, oh, I want to get... So I guess maybe I felt somewhat subconsciously safer. Like I'm doing places that are 21 and over and they're that's what's happening there. And I'm not like in this in drug culture that's really more about the drug culture than even the drinking culture. And so I was just, I just never went to that. Well, and by the way, I mean, if you had not gotten sober so young, you probably would have been more aware of how drinking was a problem, don't you think? I mean, who knows? But well, who knows what would have yeah. taken place? I mean, I don't know. I mean, even in the but 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 like Joshua Tree doesn't have some sophisticated drinking scene out there, right? <laughs> you know what I mean, so it's not like well, there wasn't. But we, I mean, we were like as kids, we were sneaking into the you know we were. I mean, this is the 80s in Southern California. We were like off to punk rock shows all over Southern California. Did you? And stuff when we were kids. And so we went to some underground clubs when I was like still drinking and partying. I remember going to them. Did you? So was any part of you in the clubs like, oh, fuck, I never got to do, I never got to have a Red Bull and vodka, you know, or whatever. That was more recent. No. I never, that, that just never been an issue. And maybe it's because I see so many people acting that way but it was also like I didn't I didn't you know there's an interesting thing that I've learned along the way is that there's three reasons why people have addiction problems one could be spiritual one could be physical one could be emotional Mm -hmm. you know and maybe mine was more on the spiritual side so sort of once I had a spiritual something happen it sort of resonated with me so do you think that a spiritual experience is necessary for uh, the desire to be taken away? It was necessary for me. I don't know. I can't speak for everybody else, but mm-hmm. um, it certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um, have you known a lot of people who have not been able to stay sober? Sure. I know lots of people. Yeah. Um, and so so do you don't, you don't think it's like a genetic thing necessarily? I'm curious, what's it? so it's emotional, physical, or spiritual. So physical meaning like the physical addiction to it, like the... the. And sometimes it could be a combination of all three. It could be a combination of the two. It could be a combination of the one. But I think it's not just... You can't approach it from just one perspective. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and so... And so... An emotional covers a broad spirit. It could be trauma. It could be anything that has happened in, in that realm. That could be a complicated area. Yeah. Um. Have you ever um, sort of needed to seek outside help, like therapy, anything? Yeah, like that? I've been in therapy my almost my whole life. Oh, okay. From the time you went to rehab, basically. No, but I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been in therapy probably. I sober for twenty seven years, so I've been in therapy probably almost eighteen, twenty years. I don't know. And and how, what do you think the combination of spiritual work? Or spirituality with therapy. What are what are the different you know pieces of that? Well, 
the different pieces are I think how do I say it even politically correctly but you know I think AA is a or, or the program is a simple if you remember what the program was designed for it was really like a group of gutter drunks getting together to help other gutter drunks right like these were the drinkers of the hopeless variety they weren't like they weren't in the clubhouse like having the everything's grand right it's like Bill and Bob were really like the worst kind of drunks yeah so they were like how do we help the worst kind of drunks and they created a very they took a very simple program mm-hmm. the Oxford group and morphed it into what is the 12-step program today which is an, an amazing place right um and so I think that that level of this spirituality takes you to a certain place there right. and then if you continue to grow along spiritual lines you're going to hopefully grow into other places where there's deeper understandings of spiritual stuff yeah you know sort of like if you really want to understand the the meaning of death then go study with the Tibetans because they've done more work for thousands of years on that particular subject mm-hmm. so if you want to find some insight into like what happens there that's the place you go look mm-hmm. right just like mm-hmm. if you want to find out like how to stop drinking go to AA because they've done it the best and that they'll show you how to stop drinking and how to start living but then after that you maybe want to go find if you're if, if you're in the program and you're and you're hungering for something else then you have to go look for you know, because I think the plight of the addict is a lack of a spiritual connection to the universe in right. some degree. So you go find that wherever you find that or however you find that, you know. And are you, can you talk a little bit about what you've done in terms of seeking that? Yeah, yeah no, I've always been on a spiritual quest my whole life. So that's not. And how do you, you know, practice secret. that? Um. It's interesting. I practice it in lots of ways, um, in just the way I choose to let things go, mm-hmm. um, the way I judge myself and others. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the privilege of working with a master, a Qigong master, for twenty some years. Um, that helps me with spiritual stuff for a long time, and. Um, I just sort of like I made a somewhere in, in my journey I made a decision to sort of seek more spiritual kind of leaders mm-hmm. in my life and I, I got a few of them in my life mm-hmm. so I kind of always am seeking and reading and understanding and you know but spirituality isn't a complicated thing we tend to complicate it in churches and religion complicated but it's pretty simple at its root mm-hmm. I think well when I got to rehab uh, my counselor said to me, um, you know, I'm going to say something and I don't want to offend you. And I was like, okay, he's going to tell me I'm bloated from drinking or, you know, something. And he goes, um, you strike me as someone who's spiritually dead. And I go, well, I'm not offended. I didn't know what he meant. And what? he said to me, um, you know, just so you know, it doesn't have to happen in a church. It can be playing with a bunch of puppies. It can be looking at the waves of the ocean. And that blew my mind because I had sort of stayed away from program stuff because I didn't want to get quote unquote religious right. and that it could be this slow build uh, you know 
and that and that it was about feeling okay with inside of me blew my mind. I didn't I didn't know it was about that at all. Yeah, I mean that's well, that's the thing. Most people, when you're drinking and getting high, you're not really thinking. Yeah, like, yeah, but I don't think I would have thought about it my whole life if you know. Yeah, an organized religion has. Uh, it's evolved. I think there's. I think all of us looking at the way of. I think the whole planet is evolving and is. In some ways, it's worse than ever, but better than ever. Like there's probably more in evolved enlightened people on the planet probably than there's ever been on the planet right it's just the volume of people that are here so but it's also you know like you know churches and synagogues are closing all over the place because people aren't going because there's not right do you go i don't go no do you pray and stuff like that yeah, yeah, I pray. you pray you meditate I meditate as much as possible mm -hmm. i'm not the best meditator in the world but mm -hmm. i do and, um, okay, well, now I think we're officially at the coffee house years. <laughs> the coffee house years. Yeah. And so you just made this decision. I mean, at, at your other, you know, you've never hosted meetings or said people can have meetings here before, had you? No, I mean, the coffee house was such a pivotal point in my life um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, a, it was the first time that I tried to do business on my own, mm -hmm. and I made some horrible mistakes in that process. But I loved it so much. I was so sad when yeah, it was. Yeah, no, it was. It was a really amazing place. But, um, but for me as a as a human, it was just such a great. I learned so many lessons mm -hmm. in opening that place and almost not opening that place. And, um, how many years was it around? I think we. I think it was only for three or four years. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. But what it was, it was um, my friend Shannon, my friend Toby, and myself. Um, we all we sort of were like, let's just have like a no nonsense noon meeting. Mm -hmm. um, let's just start a meeting in the back room at the coffee house, and let's just have it just be around Robin Share no nonsense kind of New York style. Like mm -hmm. That was sort of what we all tried to do, and, and you we're did. all still sober to this day, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, and yeah, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. It you was. Know, it was just sort of like this little back room, and I don't remember. I don't know if there was ever a meeting on Sunset before that in a business. No, because I think then the then it went to Dublin's. Right. Yeah, we moved it to Dublin's because we closed the coffee house. So then I moved it to Dublin's yeah. because we did business with at Dublin's. And then now that meeting to this day still exists, and I think it's now Rainbow. In, is it the Rainbow? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I went there. I went there. Yeah. And so you still go to meetings. I still go to meetings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, went, I was there not that long ago with the Rainbow, mm -hmm. and it's always interesting to be like, wow, I started this meeting. Right. Right. You know what I mean? It's just so. And Red Rock. And it went to Red Rock. Yeah. A while and Red Rock's gone too. Oh, it is. But that's what that that meeting was. Red Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that meeting is like fall. It's oh, and there was another one. There was another version of it. Was it the the lot? What was that club called? It was like it was. No, it was in. It was also in where One Oak is now. Okay. I don't know what the, whatever that club is. Yeah. No. In like a one, a middle of the day. No, that. But there, I mean, that was such a. You know, that was so that was the great thing about the coffee house right I mean it, it didn't stay open and I lost all my money and it almost killed me in the process but it was like creating that sort of 
a, a clubhouse because there's so many people that sort of that was their place and you know that was a, kept so many people I know to this day like they oh that kept me sober and that kept 100%. me yeah. yeah it was sort of like a fun place that had something that had some vibe and some energy but it was no alcohol yeah I think we had beer and wine but it yeah. wasn't like a drinking place no um and that was and I, that's I used to have Tim Story speak there oh I don't think I never went there one for that but um God, I loved it. Yeah, because... And George would do talks there, my spiritual teacher, like... Oh. All that stuff. Like, it's so interesting. The people that come out, like, ah, oh, this is so interesting. I'm like, I've been doing this shit for so long. Like, yeah. shit. Like, yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, I, I, like, look back on those years with such nostalgia, and I don't know if it's just early sobriety or sobriety, was just super fun to me, because my last few years of using were so dark and so lonely that to be among this fun social thing blew my mind let alone that it could happen sober yeah it was always like I mean the coffee house I mean to this day I don't know another place like it but I mean mm-hmm. before Anne passed we always used to talk about like let's build like a really fun sober clubhouse mm-hmm. that sort of was like the coffee house because mm-hmm. I think we all and we all had that same kind of like nostalgia about it like it was like oh there's so many so much great hanging stuff you know there's so many and like you don't know like who like i forget who but some crazy like tv show was written out of there like the writer came in every day and that was their place oh really like i want to say sex and city but it wasn't sex and city but it was like one of those shows right i don't remember now because the writer was like oh my god i used to come there like really oh that's so interesting um, but speaking of crazy shows, and so then, so then you um, you were on the hills for a few years as Heidi's boss, you, right? You're jumping way fast. I know. Well, I, I, it was a good transition. I thought. Um, tell me what I'm missing. No, I mean, so much, but there's no so little time. Well, so okay, so um, I so I didn't know that the coffee house like ended tragically or anything like that. I just knew that it wasn't there. Oh, it didn't end. It didn't end tragically. It just ended that I just was tired of paying all the bills, and it, and it was just a business. I just had to close it because it, mm-hmm. like, it just wasn't making. I just was funneling money into it, and I just it had to close. Was it was one of the reasons that not having a liquor, like not selling booze, is hard to keep a business afloat on Sunset Boulevard? Um, I think that would have helped. Well, I think yes, I think, but also I think my own character defects and that was like I was 20 I probably started that project when I was like 24 I didn't get it up until I was like 27 mm-hmm. and I was just a kid I didn't know yeah I'm just a high school dropout from Josh Tree that doesn't make any of it okay I'm just saying there's some of it there that like I didn't quite have and you've learned a lot since sure. yeah yeah for sure and but so I, what did you do after that after the coffee house what did we do? Um, we, I mean, we started more promotions and we kind of... Mm-hmm. So you were partnered with Jen at that point? Yeah, I partnered with Jen early though, after three years. Mm-hmm. She was my partner at Roxbury and we started Roxbury on Thursday nights. Roxbury. I remember that. Yeah. That was before I even lived here. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, after that, after... I mean, I don't know. Did we do Dublin's then? Maybe we were doing Dublin's then. Like there was a, that. It was like Dublin's, and, and then Dublin's turned into Joseph's. And oh yeah, wait. Was oh yeah. 
yeah, because Dublin's Jay Z mentions it. In... it. Talks about Jen for not letting her in. Let, let is that in a song? Is that in yeah, I Just Want to Love You? I, yeah. I know Dublin's. Um... Bubbling in Dublin's. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, she, because he had a show at the House of Blues, mm-hmm. and he rolled up with like a tour bus, like twenty five guys, mm-hmm. and she's like, "You can't come in." No, twenty five dudes, and she shut him down. And then he left and came back with like eight dudes. And she let him in. Nice. But, and he wrote about it. Yeah. He cut. Why do you want to deny me? You need me. Oh my God, I love that song. I remember like hearing that, but I, but I, you know, Jay-Z, I can't always understand all the lyrics. So I didn't, he didn't name her either. But, um, no. but so, okay. And so then Dublin's and, and um, Joseph's. Oh, then what happens to Dublin's, Joseph's? And maybe we did, then did we do Las Palmas? Oh, yeah, okay. Las Palmas. And then we did like Concord, and then we did the Lounge. Yeah, I was, I had stopped going out at that point, so now I, now and I went to Las Vegas and did Body English. Oh, I went there. Yeah. I went there for the opening. I think I was there for the opening randomly. I was in town. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know. Lots of stuff. Yeah. And, um, okay, we're just going to brush over the Hills thing. So then... No, no, I'm happy to talk so about you, ha- you hire, like, or they came the to... It was an interesting thing, because what had happened with the Hills was, I subsequently, like, had just signed my deal with SBE, mm-hmm. and we were selling our company and partnering with them, and I just had done a deal with MTV and the Hills. Okay. And, and so they were like, the deal is, you got to hire this girl. Um, did she really work there? She did. She worked there for like the first year. Uh huh. She really she assisted us. I mean, when I say for, I mean for the first season. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then after things became like a hit, everything changed. But I mean, she, you know, they she would when she was in our office, she was working and doing stuff, and then mm-hmm. they just would film us whatever whatever we happened to be doing at that time. They just sort of captured. So it wasn't like we didn't manifest the stuff that we were doing there. Mm-hmm. Maybe we manifested a scene, but it'd be like, no, Heidi, you need to file and organize this whole area. And she would have to go organize mm-hmm. it and film her doing it. Like, as she kicked and screamed. But, right. you know, that was sort of how it was. And, you know, none of us real, none of us thought it would be quite the hit that it was. I mean, Right. And at the time, you know, the guys that were running MTV um, and Liz, they were like, and Dave Kaplan, I mean, um, Dave Sorelnik, they were just like friends of mine. They were like, listen, if you don't like the girl, you don't like the situation, just fire her. Mm-hmm. Did you? Did that happen on the show? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't even remember. Did I? Maybe I did. <laughs> I don't think I ever did fire her. Um, and so it was just they were just like we don't like we don't care about you and your company. We just wanted to have a real job in a real company, right? So right. it's really about these girls. It's not. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, because everyone had approached us that time to do some reality show about us, right? Right. And this was better because it wasn't focused on you. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really make any money on it, but yeah. But so well, speaking of the hills, Jason Waller, previous guest, and I'm talking to him. Uh, Jason. Jason, oh, Jason was, was on yeah. Brooklyn Beach. No, he was on the Hills he too. Was. He was Lauren's boyfriend. Oh, that's right. And so and he and I are partnering on some stuff. He's sober and super into it. Yeah, no, he's super sweet. I met him. Yeah. 
yeah. afterwards and know that he's sober. And they're all really sweet. Actually, Lauren's awesome. Mm-hmm. I see Whitney all the time. Like, right. Like it's all. I mean, I think that's what made that show somewhat believable was, was that it was everything that was happening was sort of real. Yeah. Those were all of our clubs. Those things were clubs were really in existence. None of it was manifested. And right. You know, all those places were real. Like Teen Vogue was a real magazine. All our clubs were real. It was just sort of like real. I don't know. Yeah. And I don't, you know, who knew that it would be so crazy? You know, but it was sort of like, okay, see what happens here. And so, and then, and then you, you partnered uh, with San Zarian for SBE. And yes. you did that for? Five years. Five years. And that's a sort of a recent thing that you left? Three or four years ago. Okay. It's been a while. Okay. And um, and then, and from there, you? From there, I went and opened a place. Oh, on the west side. Well, we went to a place called Truesdale. Oh, yeah. Okay. It was on Sunset. Um, I went and sort of revamped El Soleil, this little Italian restaurant that was great. Mm-hmm. We, ended up, we ended up selling because I just, that's what the partners wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... And two years ago, I opened a place in Santa Monica called The Bungalow. Yeah. It's been really amazing. My, I think my best work ever. Oh, why? It's just a really amazing place. It's great. And it's, it's got a lot of my soul and my DNA. And I, I really came up with the concept and really worked hard on the design and really put, my, put everything I ever learned in my whole life into that project. And mm-hmm. I think everything I learned at SBE that I shouldn't do, I did there, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just all mm-hmm. kinds of yeah. stuff, you know. And it's been really, it's, it's amazingly busy and it's more popular than ever. Um, oh, and you have this like acting background. So did you want to be an actor back in the day? Nope. I think my ego wanted me to be an actor. Right. But what I found, what happened was, is I would always find myself in situations like just running nightclubs that I became friends with directors. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you just kind of meet these people and they right. always thought it would be cute if I would be the DJ or have some part in the movie. And I was like, okay. And I you played it. yourself um, on Entourage and stuff in LA Inc. I did play myself on Entourage. Doug Allen is a super sweet guy and he always like, I don't know. They're just all, you know. Yeah, so yeah. They were just like, hey, do you want to do it? And then, Somehow, you know, you know, I brokered the deal so they'd film at Sam Nazarian's house. And um, I'm just looking to see if there's anything else. Oh, I thought this was interesting. Um, I think it was Jen that said you're the most anti-social social person she knows. Where did she say that? Hold on, hold on. But oh that's no, sorry, it was your ex-fiance who said that. Oh. Most antisocial social person. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty shy by nature, and I think people take my shyness as like I'm an asshole. But the truth is, I have some sort of healthy boundaries. Like if I don't know you, I don't pretend to know you. Right. Or I'm not going to just talk to you because I should talk to you, I guess. Right. And maybe that comes across arrogant, but I'm not. Really arrogant? I'm no, sure. I mean, it never struck me as arrogant. I don't know. I just, I, you know, I kind of try to mind my own business and do my own stuff, and and that's it. And if, you know, like, I don't pretend to know people that I don't know. Right. Um, and I'm 
you know, terrible with the names. Just sometimes I forget people's names and good with faces, bad with names. Do you have to work on uh, humility, given all, like all this success and all these people that are around no, you? No, no, no. I, I mean, that's like that was a big lesson for me in the coffee house. It was sort of like all that whole thing that happened around that um, taught me a lot about humility, mm-hmm. and sort of really taught me that like being socially humiliated on a public level by a town kind of teaches you humility. Were you really socially humiliated? You don't know the story. I don't, but I don't believe it could possibly be that that bad, or I would know it. You didn't do your homework. Um, I'm so happy that that you can't even find it. No, it's buried deep after you know all this other stuff. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I mean, I knew there was crazy scandal around all that. Oh my god! Well, I'm gonna go googling that. Save it for the book. So, and so what, what do you know? At, so 27 years of sobriety. Yeah. Um, so what would you tell somebody who is struggling with drugs and, or, and or alcohol? I guess, well, it's hard to say what you tell. Uh, I think it's a case-by-case mm-hmm. study, and you have to take time to get to know people so you can understand their plight. But I think... I just know from my own experience is that I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you doing this if I wasn't sober. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's, I've had so many trials and tribulations in my life. I've won it all. I've lost it all several times. Hmm. And there's a thing that we've always say in the program, like, don't quit before the miracle happens. You know, sometimes that miracle takes 27 years. Right. Right. And I don't, I don't know why... I was always like a curious kid. and I Maybe it was because I was un- undereducated, so I'd always ed- try to educate myself. And I was a terrible reader, so I'd do books on tape. And I, anywhere I could find information, I was always digging. But I just remember when I was young, in my like 18, 19, 20, early 20s, like, like um, listening to certain tapes um, and like learning that like Abraham Lincoln ran for office like, whatever, 30-some-plus times before he ever made it into political office, right? Hmm. So you'd think, like, wow, if he just stopped on the 24th time. Right. It's just like, honey, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, they don't want me in office. I'm going to stop. But right. he didn't stop. He kept going, and then we know what happened. So it's sort of like that. I think I, when I was young, in my 20s, I watched that, like, and my therapist says this all the time because he's been with my therapist for a very long time. He's like, you have an uncanny ability to get punched off the horse and get back on the horse real fast and keep going. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, And maybe that's part of being an addict and that resilience that we have is like, I'm not going to... I think I learned, like, with the coffee house, I learned to, like when to sell something or when to get out of something like I should have got out of that deal sooner right I've, I've learned that lesson but it's also like not giving up yeah like I've learned how to fight and not give up for something you know it's like yeah I didn't I left desperate you know I left a lot of money and I left a lot of stuff but I didn't care like I was my happiness was more important to me than like making all this money yeah and I just I didn't have fear about like what am I going to do yeah you know what I mean I think there's just enough times God showed up for me in so many miraculous ways that more so than I ever could imagine that you have to be able to have some faith um, in that. And as far as like people that are nearly sober, like you got to be willing to do the work. Yeah. You know, it's like I left home 
I moved to a recovery house. I got a job in a sober environment, and I went to two meetings a day for like a year and a half. And like that was my life. Well, and also, don't you think the lessons of twelve step, which is like it's only for a day, kind of you know really help with that getting punched off the horse and getting back up you know when I was writing a book I was like oh I can't write a book and I'm like well I could write three pages a day like I've learned how to do yeah, something every learn, day like, I mean listen I've seen guys that were hobos in Skid Row that are lawyers in Century City now right so right I, it, you can't tell me that you're you're any different than that fucking guy in Skid Row yeah right so and it's also just a matter of like I think that you have to be willing to be really honest yeah you have to have some humility and you have to be willing to reach your hand out. And no one's going to get sober for you, but if you choose not to, um, I think addicts have such pride in some ways, and we can't have pride in there. And it's sort of like you have to, you know, I was, it was interesting. I was, I was um, at a baby shower with my girlfriend, and I was talking to her um The elder of the baby's the baby's grandfather. Okay, yeah. <laughs> what to call it? I didn't know what you and he and he's this amazing um, man in his nineties and he's and um, he's a judge and still is a judge and and we were just talking and he was t- asking me because he didn't know me. He was like, "What are you?" And I was we just started talking about I was sober and, he, and he's like, "Oh, I do a lot of work with the VA and helping sober people." And he goes, oh, "I love." He goes, "Those sober people, man." Those are the best people in the world and there's so much love in those rooms and those are the best people in the world that I know because they just, they're always trying to do the right thing. Right. He didn't say they do the right thing. Right. He said they're trying to do the right thing, right? Which rings so true to me because it is true. Like, I think there's such a misconception about being sober and being in the rooms that doesn't mean there's a lot of good people in there. That means there's maybe people trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And, and, there's that's still a room full of like junkies, misfits, thieves, and liars. liars yeah. Right. So it's also having a clear perspective of like, oh yeah, last week I was a junkie thief stealing my mom's purse. Right. This week I've got six days sober. That doesn't mean you're not any of those things. This means you're just trying not to do those things. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it's also it's like all all we guarantee is that people will be better than they were. Not necessarily great people. Right. And some are, of course, great, just the way there are some great people in any, anywhere. And I think, I think that there's people that's, that I see in the program that, like, they still romanticize that place with that drink and yeah. that stuff. And it's like we say, it's like the old timers stole it to me when I got to so like, if that's your romantic notion, then go finish it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't encourage anybody to do drugs, but if you are not going to be here wholeheartedly, like, they, like, when I got sober, the old timers were like, if you're fifty percent here, we don't want you here. Yeah, get out of here. Yeah, like you, they they want you, honey. They want you on the bottom. Like that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. If you just and I would encourage anybody in the program do your research on like what happened in AA in the early years and what happened and how that organization was formed and like how it almost wasn't a higher power it was almost Jesus right? yeah 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 it was real there was one guy who was like no it was He's got a story in the big book yeah it was real like it was touch and go but we we have a program that works but it, you know it's just that place of like those guys that in those early days they were gutter drunks 
you know, when you read Bill's story, he's like the asshole. You're like, why didn't, why didn't Lois leave him? Right. Like he's because she needed to start Alan. She was, but he was such a fucking loser. Yeah. Like, you yeah. Know what I mean? You're like, yeah. Like he was so bad. So what about when you hear things like Charlie Sheen going around saying, "Oh, five percent of people in AA stay sober," and that's not accurate. But is Charlie Sheen sober? No. So you have to look to the source. But people print that because, you know, somebody that they care about, right, says that. But I would challenge anybody that's writing a story or anybody that knows anybody. And if you tell me that AA helped one person, then it's a great organization. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like... I mean, the Rockefellers didn't host dinner parties in New York for the founding members of AA because it wasn't working. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They founded it because it was working. And there are hundreds of thousands of more people in it than that. there's, I don't know, how many million people in AA, and if 5% of the million equals, if that means there's a half a million sober people on the planet, then that's half a million better people. Yeah. And it is more than 5%. Way more. I mean, there are, are actual studies. I don't, yeah, and again, I don't know if, if my old friend Charlie Sheen is necessarily the expert on sobriety <laughs> or the expert on statistics. I don't hold him as a scientific, he's not a scientific he's academic. Not a mathematician. So I would, I would, I would have to question his yeah. um, theory Yeah. how we got there. Yeah. I'd love to see it worked in a lab, <laughs> but I think that, um, yeah, I mean, listen, it's like, a, it, it, that just, everything that he is saying goes back to my concept. Mm-hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and Cocaine Anonymous is, is derived of a bunch of fucking misfits. Yeah. Who, by the grace of God, happen to show up every day, 4,000 times a day. I've never seen an AA meeting start late. Yeah, I know. And people are there on time. And they're there, right? That in itself is sort of a miracle. Totally. You know what I mean? And that all of those meetings pay for themselves. Yeah. AA's not in debt. Yeah. It's not asking for grants. Yeah. It's not getting loans from the government. And so out of that organization, if if a handful of people are helped, I mean, then it's working. Yeah, that, that, I don't, yeah. You know what I mean? If you want to, if you want to, I mean... You could probably say how many people are in therapy that are divorced? Does that mean therapy is not working? Right, right. I don't know. Does it mean we should stop therapy, stop the institution of therapeutic help? Or, you know, how many people that see psychiatrists are still crazy or still taking medication? Like, okay, does psychology not work because they're on medication? Or does it work because they're on medication? Whatever. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. But I'm just saying that, like, yeah. Everything. There's nothing that's a hundred percent in the world. So it's sort of like whatever. You know, if 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 we help, you know, I just know from my own experience, I've seen it help a lot of people. It's helped me, and that's all I can go by. I can't go by. And I've seen it. I've, and I buried a lot of people. Right. We've all had people die because of drugs and alcohol. That's, yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. Right? Death is part of life. Um, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This was awesome. Pretty good, right? Not what you expected, right? Yeah, that was the king of LA nightlife. And uh, yeah, so for almost three decades, I hope you liked it. I hope you loved him and I'll see you next time.